Hi, folks. We're so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Body Politic. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love for you to join in financially supporting the show, if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm guest host Karen Atia, Washington Post columnist sitting in for Farai Chidea. Journalists report the events that shape our nation and our lives. We do this work as honestly and as accurately as we can. But as Black American journalists, we often find ourselves navigating injustice within our industry and the institutions that are supposed to protect us. Few people understand this relationship more deeply than one of the nation's most notable historians, Jelani Kopp. Cobb is an author, scholar, and journalist whose writing centers race, politics, history, and culture. He joined us live at the 2023 Just Economy Conference in Washington, D.C. to talk about the challenges he sees journalists of color facing today. He also shares findings from a new report, Uncovering Inequality, a sweeping joint commission by the Columbia Journalism School and the Ira A. Lippmann Center for Journalism and Civil and Human Rights. Let's listen. How are you? Oh, I'm really good. Thank you. <laughs> and you've been the dean and the Henry Lewis Professor of Journalism at Columbia, which is also my alma mater, mm-hmm. for seven months. Yeah. How has the seven months gone? Totally nailed it. <laughs> Got the whole thing figured out. Uh-huh. I mean, what does it mean? What does it take to be a, a dean of a journalism school, especially in this day and age when there seems to be so many issues mm-hmm. within our industry and within trying to, frankly, just tell the truth? Yeah, I've been dean for seven months. I've been on on faculty at Columbia Journalism School for seven years. And we're in a period of immense pressure uh, on journalists where we're really literally being told that we have to do more with less. And when we say with less, it means less money, less in terms of the number of colleagues you have that you can spread the workload out over. And at the same time, it seems like a proliferation of crucial issues uh, that we need, you know, the best, sharpest, most analytical minds uh, to engage. Uh, And so one of the things that we're talking about is we're talking about inequalities. You know, we have this project, which is meant to help reshape the parameters for the conversation about inequality and reshape the ways in which inequality is covered, and I'm you know, really eager to talk about that. Uh, but at the same time, the people who are covering it are often experiencing that same sort of inequality, or at least marginality, because it's shocking to people to say that you know, the average starting salary for a journalist now is somewhere around $35,000. It is crucial, crucial work. Uh, if we look at the George Santos situation, uh, where a person lied about everything. I mean, just basic, fundamental stuff, like every single thing. And it was played for punchlines on late night TV because the lies were so absurd. Big, bold print, easily discernible, easily fact-checked lies that should have been caught before he was sworn into Congress. 
But I said, you know, sure, we can talk about this. But the problem typically is not the big lies. The most pernicious are the subtle ones. The person who shades a number on an earnings report. You know, the person who skews the data about just how carcinogenic this product you made really is. Like those sorts of things where it requires someone to have the diligence, the resources, teamwork, the assistance, the, the number of people who are, are all in on what it takes to do an investigation in order to bring that to light. Uh, and so if you miss the really big lies, the most important thing is that that is a barometer of many, many more small lies that you're missing, and that is directly connected to what's happening with resources and journalism. It doesn't take much to muddy the waters in such a way that people throw up their hands and say, oh, I, I don't know, we'll just never find out you know, what the truth is. There are lies, damn lies, and statistics, you know, um, and that kind of relinquishing of our responsibility to at least know what's going on in the public square. That is one of the things that we're most concerned about. And that was one of the things that, you know, we're taking seriously in terms of teaching emerging journalists about how you operate in a disinformation ecosystem. And I'll be honest with you and say that we're still learning as we're teaching it uh, because the landscape is changing so fast. Speaking of um, sort of looking at landscapes, I want to talk to you about this Uncovering Inequality report that you released, which pairs uh, the social sciences and journalism and looking at inequality in five areas. So economics, criminal justice, health, housing and education. And you convened a large number of renowned researchers mm -hmm. to, to compile that. I mean, what were some of the biggest sort of takeaways, maybe not even just from the report, but even the process mm -hmm. of compiling just such a sweeping look at, at inequality in this country? So we, in the spring of 2020, were looking at the same things that everyone else was. And, you know, we had a proposal that was into the Ford Foundation, and I don't even remember what that proposal was, you know, as a, as a kind of measure of, like, how much has transpired since then. Uh, but I know that proposal went in maybe a week or two before George Floyd died. Days after, Darren Walker called me directly and said, I wonder if you're thinking differently about this proposal. This is Darren Walker, the director of Darren the Walker, director Ford, Ford Foundation. Foundation. Yeah. Um, and I said, yeah, I want to rescind that proposal. And he was like, what do you want to replace it with? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> but I was like, something else. Because we were looking at all these things. And he said, well, you know, what are you thinking? And I said, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of a pandemic recession. And we're in the midst of this reckoning with police violence, we're talking about them like they're three different things. We're not talking about the fact that all of those things disproportionately affect the same communities. You know, I said, if we have a, a virus that is so new, that is literally referred to as the novel coronavirus, how does it know the address of the hood? Mm. And so what we're looking at is just as you have rain gutters that route water away from where you don't want it to places where you've deemed that it's more acceptable for it to go, we have the social equivalent of that, that hardship falls in particular places and that it follows a particular rubric. And we need to find a way to talk about that. 
And so I thought about it and thought about it and had conversations with um, my people at Columbia Journalism School. We were saying, how do we contextualize this conversation about inequality and how do we do this in a way that's consistent with our mission as a journalism school? And so what we came up with was the Inequality Project. We said we would look at racial inequality in those five areas, housing, education, healthcare, criminal justice, and economics. And you know, around the same time that we were thinking about this, two scholars, Mary Jackman and Kim Shaman, uh, sent me a draft of a paper that they had written. And they had done something astounding. They had crunched all of the mortality data for the 20th century. Uh, they started in 1900, ended in 1999, and came with a staggering analysis that said, of the black people who died in the 20th century, 40%, 40% of those people fell into the category of excess death, which is to say people who would not be anticipated to have died at that point were they not black. Mm. That stood out, but it didn't surprise me. Sure. What was more notable to me was the fact that there had always been a gap in life expectancy. It had not always been driven by the same things. At the beginning of the 20th century, this was driven by infant mortality, overwhelmingly. Homicide is a secondary factor. As you know, antibiotics become more available, you see infectious disease, which is also one of the drivers, drop out. And as neonatal care becomes more accessible, you see that begin to drop out. And then in the middle of the 20th century, what emerges is a pattern that you see fully developed now, which is diseases of middle age that knock off 10, 20, 25 years of people's lives. Diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. That is the pattern. So inequality wasn't just created, it was recreated and then re-recreated. And the analogy that I used it was like software that received an update, that it operated in one way, in one context, and then there was a systemic shift. Society changed in particular ways, and inequality reemerged in a different context. And so we requested that these five teams of scholars in each of those areas look at inequality, and I posed one question to them. What does your field know about inequality in this area over time. And we defined over time as at least 50 years. And so what we got were these reports. And we said 50 pages. It's hard for academics to say their names in 50 pages. <laughs> I think at first I said 25 pages, which they thought was just a haiku. <laughs> like revolted about that. Um, but what we did with those reports was create a kind of basis for understanding the parameters of how the housing market is unfair, but it hasn't always been unfair in the same way. And how have these different forms of unfairness reinforced each other? What have been the areas of convergence, which was also important? We've always had this economic gap, but it always hasn't been the same size. Mm. Sometimes there have been periods where we saw vast improvement. Sometimes the housing market was less rigidly segregated in terms of value than it was at other points. And so we were looking for the moments of opportunity in that. And so once we had those five reports in hand, we then started disseminating them to teams of journalists and saying, I would like you to take this uh, report on housing and just do work that's informed by it. 
You know, it could be anything. You could report out the things that are in the story. You could take this information and apply it to stories that you're already doing. We simply want you to use this knowledge. And what we were trying to do at Columbia Journalism School was reframe the parameters of the conversation around racial inequality. We also have a bigger kind of set of things. We want to change the parameters of the conversation around lots of things, around bigger sets of broader inequalities that affect the country, generally speaking. We're just getting started with that, but that's what we're doing now. Um, and we've just, the reports are available uh, on our website at the Lipman Center at Columbia Journalism School. And we're encouraging all sorts of people to use them in, in ways that they think will be helpful. How has this industry undermined um, the, the pursuit of getting to the truth and the root of, uh, root of inequality in this country? So, you know, there's a data way to answer that, and then there's a kind of broader way to answer it. The data part of it is that when we talked about racial inequality for most of the reports, because it's over time, we're talking about black-white inequality. And there's not even data on other communities um, until like post-1965, because the Immigration Act of 1965 drastically changes the demographics of the country. You can't even really get reliable data on Latinos until the 1970s. The one distinction is in education. And so the people who did the education report did a lot of stuff around the inequality that, for instance, Native American uh, students experienced you know, early in the 20th century and so on. But for a lot of this data, you are, you are kind of bound by where the researchers paid attention um, and what they paid attention to. And there'd been a long tradition, along economics, there's a long tradition of kind of black economists who were bringing these questions up literally back into like the 1910s, 1910s, 1920s, and so on. So you could actually understand that um, in that way. But in a, in a bigger kind of sense, we've had these separate reckonings in this country and a kind of low-grade fever around all sorts of inequality and all sorts of inequities that are uh, fundamentally economic, but also social and all these other kinds of things. Uh, and it's partly because we have not been willing to have the bigger conversations. Like even when we talk about, you know, when we say things like income inequality, you know, like income inequality is a euphemism. Once upon a time, people would say something like class exploitation, you know, which means there's actually something being done to someone. Not just as just basic, it just is. It just is. Like it just is something that like comes like, in, in certain uh, environmental dynamics, you can produce hail. <laughs> it's like, in certain circumstances, you can produce income inequality, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything that anyone actually did or what the legislature, what the laws have been, what the policies and practices have been. And we don't want to have that conversation. But we also have to remember that the most sustained growth that we've seen in the middle class, across racial lines in this country, comes as a result of the reforms in our capitalist system that came about because of the Great Depression. That it was the threat of the collapse of capitalism that made people reckon with the idea that more people had to have some sort of semi-just relationship to capitalism. We have a kind of limited time frame for which historical lessons operate. You know, I, I often talk about how our, for instance, our debate around vaccines would have been completely inscrutable to the generation of people who saw polio. Right. 
So people who lived through polio and saw what the polio vaccine did had a very different relationship. But once those people had by and large died out, we forgot what that had meant. Same thing, like the people who lived through the Great Depression have by and large in many instances died out. We have moved away from the understanding of what it meant to have the kind of radical inequality that we've seen uh, in this country um, with the astounding disparities, irrespective of whether you live in a blue state or a red state. Um, and even the kind of staggering housing inequalities that we see in predominantly liberal areas, New York City, San Francisco, doesn't matter. Um, and that kind of inequality has persisted because we're, we're in the midst of systemic threat and we haven't actually talked about why. How much of that, again, also, you know, us as journalists, as, as wordsmiths and as um, sort of information workers, is our language, you know, softening, serving the purposes oh, sure. of, right. I, I'm thinking, I know we're talking about, um, you know, inequality in terms of economics, but I'm even thinking about our language around police shootings, sure. right? There's this sort of passive, sure. uh, you know, officer involved. Officer involved shooting, shootings, right. uh, the, the weapon discharged exactly. itself. As if, as if the weapon was like, you know what I'm gonna do right now? Yeah, it's Tuesday, like, why right. don't I just, you know. Right. Exactly. Right. So, like, how much of that is also, especially as an educator, we are not able to have those conversations because our, our language and our, our um, standards. You know, we're in the midst of these debates of these wars about objectivity. Right. And, you know, the problem is that we're not using the same definition of objectivity. Um, and if you're talking about the, the initial idea of journalistic objectivity, which was independence and not being beholden. Like, I mean, even now to this day, we have newspapers that are called, you know, the Democrat or the Republican. And like th those papers used to have formal relationships to the political parties. Uh, and so the idea of objective journalism was more disinterested. So the Democratic Party paper would always cover Republican corruption and vice versa. Uh, and it was a radical idea to say, what if we had papers that just covered corruption and we weren't really invested, this, let the chips fall where they may. And that was the great innovation of journalism to say we should be disinterested. Along the path, we came to this idea that we should have this detached voice of God perspective, um, which was never possible or necessarily even desirable. And the result of that was that you could never really say anything that might offend someone else um, for fear of being called biased. Uh, and you would wind up with kind of both sides. So literally on the, the train, the Amtrak coming down, I got into a conversation with the person who was in the seat across from me. Uh, and I mentioned what I do for a living. And he said, I just feel like we should have journalism that tells all the sides. And I was like, yeah, sure. Do you know what all the sides are? You know, because you, that means I'm going to give air uh, to the person who tells you that vaccines will make you magnetic, you know, and so like really believe they will magnetize you and you will be like uh, Magneto from the X-Men. <laughs> and so like, but you don't want that person's perspective in it. So it means we are going to make a judgment and we've always been making judgments, but we've been making judgments without really being willing to own the fact that we've made judgments. And that's how I think we get into part of the problem. 
Yeah, I, I think about uh, this this question of objectivity and neutrality. And, you know, I've written plenty of times that I think that that is a position to take when you're in a position of privilege, when sure. the outcome does not uh, affect you materially. And that very often, some of our, our best journalists in history, I think of Ida B. Wells all the time, sure. um, using their journalism to actively make that judgment call to say, I'm going to study and I'm going to find out what's happening with lynching um, in the United States, right? right? I'm curious not to put you in the spot as a seven month old dean, but how do you see this question of objectivity and neutrality, particularly when it comes to inequality? How do you pursue balance? And even if that's the right question, I've, I've seen these things as actually means to an end, mm -hmm. neutrality and objectivity in trying to address these issues that require interventions. That is, by definition, not sort of a, mm -hmm. a balance, you know? So how are you thinking about teaching that, talking to even established people in our field about that, or even this report? Um, how do you see that kind of intersecting with these debates that we're having about how we should do journalism mm -hmm. and if objectivity is really the virtue that we should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that even-handedness is not necessarily a virtue. And, you know, that may be controversial, um, but they're not always two things that are equal. And that when you treat things that are unequal as if they are equal, you don't serve your purpose in terms of giving the public information that's useful to them about their lives. Now, there are places where you report the debate about things. If we're talking about what one side says about the marginal tax rate, and another side says about the marginal tax rate, there may well be data that roughly supports each argument on either side. You can write about that, but it also is necessary for journalists to have enough understanding of enough things to know uh, when they see quite frankly. Um, and so, am I not supposed to say that? Sorry, this is going on NPR. Uh, oh, NPR. <laughs> We say uh, bovine manure. We'll, so we'll, we'll, we'll deal uh, with it in the, in the after, after edits, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's, it's, it's important that you serve that function as well uh, and that you are uh, equipped to be able to report accurately and that you know, we're doing this at the journalism school now, that you have a sense of understanding about how people manipulate uh, data sets to make something appear to be. Now, we're not saying that every person who graduates is going to be a statistician, but we want you to have enough understanding to navigate conversations with people who might be trying to, to make it seem that two things are equal when they're not, or that there's an equal claim to something when it's not. And so if we mean by objectivity, we want you to not be invested in what the implications of telling the truth are, then we are all on board with that. You know, we should be equal opportunity. We should pick our targets um, with kind of equal opportunity. Uh, but we should also not shy away from telling the world what is actually happening. I'm sure as an educator, you've been watching what's been going on in our country with um, other universities in terms sure. of uh, the, what I would say, the sort of active uh, censoring sure. of educators that are allowed to teach about inequality, about race, about history. You know, especially, um, I'm, I'm from Texas, I'm, I've been reporting on this happening in Texas um, and in Florida. Um, I'm curious about how you're seeing this, especially as, as a historian, and even for, you know, the purposes of all of us here in this room that care about 
inequality and care about even getting the data uh, or getting the permission for, for teachers and researchers and educators to even carry out these studies. I mean, is this, are we going through something that could really kind of seriously actually impact our understanding of this country oh, uh, sure. you know, for the future? It, it already is. Right. Um, and so when we talk about this, first off, there's a point that I've made. Since I'm a person who actually has taught critical race theory, um, and I know what it is and what it is not. I'd be surprised that a lot of people who are very vocal about it have no idea what it is. Well, I said they have the biggest advantage. The critics of, of critical race theory have the biggest advantage in that they have not read any of it. <laughs> and so, and one of the quickest ways to end that conversation is that whenever someone would say critical race theory, you say, which particular theorist? <laughs> who, who are you referring to? Um, and that conversation, will, that question will almost always be met with silence. And so the irony of this is, I wrote a piece, you know, I hate to be one of those people who self-quotes. Um, That's fine. I know, but I just will direct people to the piece that I wrote about Derrick Bell and The New Yorker, um, the late law professor Derrick Bell, and it's called The Man Behind Critical Race Theory. If we would look at all of the kind of sprawling bodies of literature around critical race theory and distill it down to a few things, one of them would be the argument that in a racially hierarchical society, people will utilize the tools of anti-discrimination in order to further the cause of actual discrimination. So when you look at the language being used by the people who were trying to ban CRT, what they are actually doing is validating CRT. It is this meta experience that they have no sense, they have no understanding of. We would say the biggest proponent of CRT in the United States right now is Ron DeSantis. Um, because they are using this language of, we don't want white people to be discriminated against. And, and using that language to neuter attempts to actually upend the historic discrimination that communities of color have faced. That is the reality. The impact of that is already being felt not only in the level of, of secondary schools and elementary schools, but in the level of universities and what questions faculty members are willing to pursue, what questions untenured faculty members feel comfortable writing about. And so it's had this kind of massive chilling effect that is still ongoing and shows no sign of relenting. I'm gonna uh, toss like a mini grenade into okay, that. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Again, as someone who's from, from Texas and, and seeing what's happening in, in the red states, those are the ones that make the headlines, mm -hmm. right? However, we are also looking at so-called liberal institutions sure. that made a lot of promises in 2020 around the time that you proposed your Uncovering Inequality Report. Mm -hmm. A lot of these promises to do better on integration, diversity, DEI, I often like to call DEI basically racial integration right. <laughs> programming. Right. We're also seeing that as well, the rollback sure. of those uh, pledges and promises, mm -hmm. the unfulfilled donations, uh, hiring, what have you. So I would also say it's, it's not just the right, quote unquote. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. it's, also, it's across the board, almost as if our racial justice 2020 internship is over now, right. and we can get back to regular programming. Yeah, I mean, the actual engagement of this is that, um, now I've told this story a few times. I was in Maine a few years ago, 
And I was there to give a talk, and I was at Bates College, and you know, people there are wonderful, they're amazing. Senator Angus King came out for the talk, and it was, it was wonderful. And I was feeling more and more uncomfortable um, because I knew what I was going to say when I stood up. And I opened my comments and said, uh, this is great, thank you for your hospitality, this place only exists because of white supremacy. Um, and that went over like, what? <laughs> and then people thought about what I meant. Um, and I was referencing that 1820 compromise that when Missouri wanted to enter the Union, it would have tipped the balance in terms of the number of free states and slave states. 11 free, 11 slave. There would have been 12 slave, meaning that there would have been more representatives of pro-slavery states in the United States Senate, which was a situation that Northerners would not abide. Uh, and in order to make that possible, to make it possible for Missouri to enter the Union, they just created a new state out of the northwestern portion of Massachusetts. Just carved out this new state that counterbalanced Missouri. And so I said that, you know, this whole place was there to allow the uh, distinguished gentlemen of Missouri to indulge in their right to buy, sell, traffic, rape, own, and abuse black people. And so that's how we got started. And so I left Maine and went to Florida. And I told the people in Florida what I'd said in Maine. And they were like, <gasps> and I was like, well, before you get too smug, why do you think Andrew Jackson marched into the place that's now known as Jacksonville and seized that territory on the behalf of the United States? Um, partly as part of a suppression campaign of the Seminole uh, Native Americans, um, but also to cut off the escape route of enslaved black people who were fleeing from South Carolina and Georgia into what was then a Spanish territory, knowing that they would not be returned. And so that is the origins of the state of Florida are tied to the history of trying to prevent people from escaping slavery. We could talk about Texas, we could talk about California, we go through the whole geography of this country. And so the problem doesn't correspond to red states and blue states. The problem corresponds with a fundamental unwillingness to grapple with American history that can be found anywhere in the country. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Washington Post columnist Karen Atiyah, sitting in for Farid Shadea. We're sharing our live conversation from the Just Economy Conference in Washington, D.C., with celebrated writer, historian, and the Dean and Henry Luce Professor of Journalism at Columbia Journalism School, Jelani Cobb. Cobb was the driving force behind the report Uncovering Inequality, which looks at racial inequality in the U.S. and how it has persisted throughout history. The report was released in March and is already making waves in the journalism industry and beyond. You can find the link to the report on our website, ourbodypolitik.com, or on Instagram and Twitter at ourbodypolitik. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Do you find that the younger journalists that you're seeing at the school, again, I know you're fresh into it, but I'm thinking about the younger journalists, particularly the ones that have um, definitely seen, I mean, all the way from uh, perhaps uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter and all that. Are you seeing that they get it and that they're eager to kind of uh, fix how we talk about these things? What are you seeing? You know, I, think, I think that um, what's happened with 
certainly with younger journalists, um, and you know, some of our students are more mature um, folk further in their careers, but, um, and they have a different set of experiences, frames of reference, but uh, for people who saw COVID, one of the things that COVID did was strip away the euphemisms. You know, we could see exactly what was happening in the society. We could see who was being affected. Um, we could see the crucial issues in the vulnerable communities that, um, you know, really in the past decade, we've seen just become more vulnerable. Um, and the way that the economy works for some people and that it doesn't work for other people. Uh, those things, I think, are more apparent for them in their lifetimes than it was. The, the euphemisms and the cloaks worked better, I think, previously. Uh, and so when I um, interact you know, with our students, they are very clear about wanting to report you know, in ways that are beneficial uh, to communities that are vulnerable. And that doesn't mean that uh, they're not people who want to you know, go into sports and in, in, you know, sports journalism or people who want uh, to cover you know, all sorts of a whole array of human affairs. Um, and I think that's important that we have journalists who are well equipped to cover every single thing that comes up that we, that we classify as news. Um, but there is a real sense, I think, of understanding the necessity of exposing what exactly is happening and who exactly is responsible. Absolutely. All right, now I'm going to move to uh, questions they have for you. This first question is, um, I don't have a name on this, but it's a, well, it's a very good question. Your work is about identifying systemic inequalities in its new forms, but many don't even accept the premise that racism is systemic. Do you try to convince them or do you continue on and report for those who are willing to listen? Mm -hmm. I think that our job, I, I talked with Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones about this. Our job is to put out information, you know, and people can do with it what they will. There really is no credible argument that there isn't systemic racism in this country. The reason I say that is that every single institution that we have in American life produces reliably hierarchical outcomes that correspond with race. Um, we see that in education, we see that in our criminal justice system, we see that in our housing system, we see that in employment, um, we see that in healthcare, we see that in just the most fundamental statistic, which is who lives the longest. Uh, we see all of these things that if they were all over the map, we could have an argument about this but they roughly correspond to the categories that we see as race. Um, and so, you know, I, I wrote something, you know, in the midst of the George Floyd um, kind of reckoning that said that to the extent that race represents anything coherent in American life, it is simply a set of probabilities. And you know, like when we look at the probabilities, it explains to us what race actually is in this country. Um, and so beyond that, we just saw this thing that the Times published where wealthy, so people will say, oh, but what about class? It was like, sure, class is a real issue. Class, I just mentioned class exploitation and the uh, so-called income inequality and all the things that we see um, that have only been exacerbated. Not the same thing as the problem we're talking about. You know, there's some Venn overlap between those two things, but they're not the same. Um, we just saw the thing in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that wealthy black women have infant mortality rates that exceed those of poor white women, or that black people with in household incomes 
that are about $100,000 have home values of white people whose homes are about $60,000. Like there is a racial element to this that is pernicious. And like you said, the software gets updated periodically uh, to make sure that it is applicable in new contexts. And we have to be willing to actually grapple with that. And to the extent that we say, oh, there's no, nothing systemic about it, it simply uh, is a reflection of the refusal to acknowledge the society that we're living in. I have a question here that um, actually gets to a topic that um, I wanted to touch on, so I'm very glad that it is in here. And it's on the subject, I would say, of news deserts. Um, mm-hmm. So many of the people here, I'm sure, are um, obviously interested in enriching you know, our communities. Mm-hmm. And again, we need uh, a rich information landscape. Um, but this question basically you know, is talking about, so our local papers are getting shut down. Mm-hmm. Do you see a future movement of journalists creating new news businesses in response? And I would, you know, taking upon the liberty of myself to add, how does the shutting down of local news um, really, you know, impact inequality? And- oh, sure. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, most of us live our lives locally. You know, that's, most of us live, uh, I forget what it is, but within a few miles of the place where we were born. Um, you know, we're a, a really hyper-local society. And, you know, the distrust, one of the things that we see now is this conversation around the distrust of news media. And, you know, we've thought about this as being connected to what's happening in news. And they say, sure, that's actually true. And there are lots of things that are going on and disinformation doesn't help, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I've pointed out to my colleagues that, like, look, uh, the places where news is disappearing and news organizations are shuttering are in the exact places where you were most likely to know people, most likely to feel personal connection. The things that we, we do that bind people to us, that trust us, that make people trust us, is not election coverage. Um, it is not presidential election coverage. It's not even mayoral electoral coverage. It is the coverage of the high school that made it to the quarterfinals. It is the coverage of the uh, local Arbor Day parade um, and whose float you know, won first prize. Like, the things that let you know that you understand who you are talking to. Um, And those things are going away. On the other side of it, big outlets, the Washington Post is doing fine. Uh, The New York Times is doing fine. The LA Times is is doing well. Uh, I mean, I'm at the New Yorker. The New Yorker is doing well. And for most of American history, outside of news media, Americans have had a historic distrust of large institutions. If you go back to the railroad era, people distrusted the railroad trusts. You know, Joseph Pulitzer, who founded the journalism school, um, started his career uh, writing about how the railroad trusts were corrupt and people didn't trust them. Uh, if you uh, talked about, if you get John Steinbeck, you know, Grapes of Wrath, with the distrust of banks in the early 20, earliest 20th century, early 20th century. Um, because they were thought of as these monolithic, (laughs) I can't talk now, monolithic, faceless institutions. Um, And it is just now that our news is, our news landscape is dominated by large organizations that are centered in places where most of these people do not live. So we are heirs to that historic distrust. And so that's part of it.
This is a question that, you know, we have, uh, you know, as an institution, we get asked about this all the time. We try to say we need to win back people's trust, and there are all mm. sorts of ways we, we think about that. Does that mean um, ensuring trust in the quality of our product, putting on the articles, how much work and how much time and sometimes how much money went into it? Um, it's this question of, uh, of, of how do we earn trust, but in a culture that fundamentally, yes, again, is, cynical, is distru cynical yeah. distrustful, some would say maybe anti uh, intellectual. So sometimes I wonder, again, are we, are we wasting our time? Well, well, let me start with this. Like, it's my time to throw a grenade. We should be trustworthy. And what I mean by that is we haven't grappled with the fact that a lot of the distrust that people have for media is warranted. Um, and that we have to be institutions that actually deserve the trust of the people who we write. Now, I don't mean this is for every outlet, for every organization, for every, uh, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there are communities that looked at news coverage for years and didn't think that they were reflected, um, certainly not reflected in a way that they understood themselves. So that's the starting place. The other aspect of it, I think, is that we have to find ways of subsidizing and creating, uh, and I think this is going to have to come from something akin to what the Australians are doing, where the Australians are levying taxes on tech platforms, which are then used to support local journalism. We are averse to that kind of thing here in the United States. It's not even part of the conversation, but the platforms are making gazillions of dollars on content that they don't create and that they don't pay for. Um, and at some point, we're going to actually have to come to terms with that, because I don't think it's going to be that we get more people in the middle of the country to trust the LA Times. It's more like we make it possible for the people who live in the middle of the country to have the outlet that is actually covering what's going on in their world. Another question that speaks about resources and, and journalism, this question says, the tasks for journalists to ensure accuracy and representation seem high compared to the incentives of the jobs with right. the wages, as you spoke That's right. of. Uh, with uh, the median salary of right. a reporter being right. 30000 How do we ensure quality and equity in journalism when the incentives are so low? So, I mean, I think about this. Like, we have people who um, every year graduate from social work schools. Every year we have people who... Probably many people in this room, I'd imagine. Right. Or people who become kindergarten teachers people who um, do work that is vital and that's essential and that we don't pay well. Um, and I think that it is just imperative that we fight like hell on behalf of those people. And so, I mean, but it, it literally does not work without them. And like my hope in the midst of the pandemic, um, when we had that kind of category of essential workers, uh, my hope was that this was going to spark a bigger reckoning with what labor means, what work means in the United States. And that hasn't happened, but also know that sometimes things take a long time to germinate, um, that seeds that were set then. Um, and like, for instance, I live in New York City, and, and during the kind of really intense phases of lockdown, you would look out the window and you would only see two things. 
One were the ambulances. The other were these fleets of bike delivery persons who were bringing food to people throughout the city. And every time someone opened their door, they took a viral risk to hand them that food. And that was like essential for people. Um, we didn't have that conversation. And so I think that journalists are here, but we have the advantage of having visibility. We know how to argue a, a case. We know how to present information. Um, but I think that this is the fight that we're in. This is the long, the long haul fight. And the thing that I think about every single day as dean of the journalism school, you know, are we doing right by our graduates? Are we doing right by the people who are in the field um, who are doing this work because they care? This question, and again, it sort of ties into this, and this is um, maybe a form of maybe even advice for black journalists entering the field and wanting to cover perhaps uh, the, the topics that we're talking about today. Would you say that our assignments given to black journalists, are they skewed towards topics of cultural significance? And I think I would take from that just in terms of how should black journalists think about the topics that they are either sort of assigned to cover or, or what they can cover. Obviously, I can, there are not many of us, in, particularly in these legacy institutions, and there is a, a sense of sometimes duty or, or for some maybe burden, responsibility, privilege, what have you, to cover quote unquote black topics, race, mm -hmm. racism. Sure. What would you say, you know, to, to black journalists who are trying to enter this space and, and how they go about choosing what they, if they can, choosing what they cover? You know, I think that the, the most important thing, well, one of the, the first questions I got when I came to Columbia as a faculty member um, was, and I got this question more than once, uh, and it was always from white students who would ask if it was acceptable for them to cover stories about race. And I mean, at first the question kind of threw me. And then I was like, no, yes. Right? It is important that you be able to knowledgeably cover issues that relate to race, irrespective of who you are. And I have the kind of opposite conversation very often with black journalists. It is important that you be able to cover knowledgeably and accurately any single thing that comes up. And so I think that some of the best things that I've done, I'm overwhelmingly known for the work that I did around race, that I've done around race. Some of the work that I'm proudest of have been stories that I got thrown in on where I didn't have any background and you had to rely on your tools as, as a journalist, being able to listen to people, knowing what questions to pose, knowing how to find information, uh, knowing how to write accurately and quickly, like those things have to be your core skill set that are applicable in any way that you go. Um, and I think that you'll always be in good standing with that. Mm. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you. That was Jelani Cobb, author and contributing writer for The New Yorker and the Dean and Henry Luce Professor of Journalism at Columbia Journalism School live at this year's Just Economy Conference in Washington, D.C. Cobb is the author of The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama and the Paradox of Progress, The Matter of Black Lives, writing from The New Yorker, and The Devil and Dave Chappelle, amongst other works. 
He also won the 2015 Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism for his columns on race, police, and injustice. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Body Politic. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Karen Atiyev. Farad Shadea and Nina Spensley are our executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Anoa Shanga is our producer. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Monica Morales-Garcia is our fact checker. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Beamy Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.